Welcome to the Birmingham Vineyard Podcast. We hope you find it insightful and encouraging. If you want to find out more about us, head to our website, birminghamvineyard.com. And I'm one of the site pastors here, along with Becky. And as has been said a few times, um, I'm chatting about marriage. Um, so we're in the. If you, it's great to see so many new faces, um, particularly if you're visiting. It's great to have you with us. Um, we're in the midst of a series looking at identity, faith, and relationships. And so, um, just as a heads up, we're going to talk about sex. Um, and so. Uh, Also, I recognise that on this topic of marriage, there are lots of different um, thoughts and opinions, both in culture and in the church. And so if you have any questions or concerns about anything I say, please do come and chat to me. I promise you, I am approachable. (laughs) Um, So talking about culture, um, I want to set it a little bit in some cultural context. So... Much like the Corinthians, as we've heard several times in this sermon series, we live in a culture that is absolutely obsessed with sexual relationships. Add into that romance, which is a hugely influential concept developed in the Middle Ages, and then, of course, the more recent influences of consumerism, and we arrive at some of our current thinking on marriage, a lot of which is a millennia away both literally and figuratively, from God's original intent. So in our culture, we can tend to romanticise and idealise marriage. Or, maybe more accurately, the idea of finding the one. The one who will bring you happiness and companionship, who will accept and affirm you for all that you are, faults and all, who will be the perfect match sexually, intellectually, emotionally, someone who shares your hopes and dreams and values, a soulmate, whose whose personality brings out the best in you and with whom the idea of two being better than one is fulfilled. Their strengths cover all your weaknesses. They are the one who will keep you company, will keep you young at heart in your later years and stop you being lonely, fulfilling all your needs single-handedly Ensure that you are brought to wholeness and the very best version of yourself. Well, when you put it all together, sounds pretty unrealistic, really, doesn't it? I mean, who can live up to those expectations or in reality carry the crushing burden of being someone's everything? But there are elements of truth in there. And they kind of feel right, bits of it. But you know, it's weird, sometimes in our culture, people can be so committed to these ideals that it holds them back from committing to marriage. They might say, okay, I'll live with you like we're married, but I don't actually want to marry you in case, you know, the one turns up. I mean, the real one. It might be you, but I don't know, so I'm not going to commit. Many in our society live their lives through a series of sexual relationships, trying out compatibility to see if this one is the one. And sometimes, more deliberately, wanting to reap the gratifications of a short-term sexual relationship, not wanting to commit to, to the lifelong commitment that marriage entails. And for every person making those decisions, there are the other halves, the ones left betrayed and abandoned, wounded, hurt, wondering if marriage is just an over-romanticized and out-of-date thing after all. 
So this is something of what culture has to say about marriage. But we believe that the Bible speaks prophetically into culture, encouraging us where we have got it right and challenging and correcting us where we have strayed. And this morning, I want to take a look at what the Bible has to say about marriage. Last week, Pippa and Lauren did a great job dealing with the question of singleness and looking at the passage of 1 Corinthians 7. And so I'm going to not focus so much on that passage, but rather take a bit more of a kind of Bible overview. So with all that said, let's read some scripture. The beginning is always a great place to start. And so in Genesis 2, it says this. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Don't get hung up on that word helper. God uses that word to describe himself, and it's also a name that's used regularly for the Holy Spirit. So it's not in any way a value statement. It's just a function statement in this case. Now the Lord God has formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, or more accurately in the Hebrew, sung, This is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. And she was, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were naked, and they felt no shame. So in this passage, we see that, you, that the union of man and woman in what culture later calls marriage was God's idea. In verse 24, it starts in some translations, therefore, which implies that the previous verses contain some kind of explanation as to why marriage. Well, the picture there is that in the creation of two sexes, male and female, something that was once united has been separated, so that in the union of man and woman, that separation is reconciled. It points to the reality that no single sex or gender can fully express God's image on their own. That is why we are called into community. Marriage, therefore, bears witness to God's intentional creation of gender difference and its goodness and affirms its necessity and value. On this theme, Paul later on in 1 Corinthians writes this, Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. So marriage and sex is one way that our interdependence as man and woman is expressed and affirmed. Marriage and sex is, yeah. So we see that marriage affirms our difference, our independence, and the importance of our unity. But what about the question of helper? What is she helping him with? Well, God gives Adam and Eve this command in Genesis 1. He says, it says, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea, the birds in the sky, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So Eve is not just helping Adam feel less lonely. 
As they looked at last week on singleness, the biblical solution to loneliness is not marriage. It is friendship and community. So to state the obvious, man on his own cannot fulfill God's command to be fruitful and multiply. Rather, in sex, this sense of interdependence and the coming together of difference is expressed in a very real physical way. And it is only by the joining together of male and female that new life is created and more humans are born. Our bodies are generally designed in that way and our differences from each other enable the blessing of new life to be created. But in saying this, I don't want to reduce gender difference to mere physicality, nor to say that individuals and couples who struggle with infertility are in some way second class. And also, this isn't the only role because ultimately they rule together. It's not just about reproduction, it's also about ruling. But what I do want to do is highlight the beauty, power, and necessity of gender difference in God's design. But is this just an Old Testament idea that we can you know, move away from as, we, as for those of us who are under the new covenant? Can we do away with this? Well, Jesus in Matthew 19, when asked about divorce, quotes this verse in defining marriage and its permanence. And we saw the other week when we looked at 1 Corinthians 6 that Paul, when defining um, sexual immorality and the bounds to sexual activity, he quotes these verses as well. So, it's a New Testament principle as well, but however... With all of that said, Jesus is also clear that we are not to idealize or overemphasize marriage because marriage and sex are not eternal. So Jesus says in Mark 12, when the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. So in the new creation, I will not be married to Becky, nor will we be having sex because sex and marriage are blessings only for this life because they point beyond themselves and find their fulfillment in the unity with Jesus in the new creation. We see this in Ephesians 5 as well, where Paul writes, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing of water through the word, and to, the, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ. And the church. So this unity pictures something of Christ and the church. And this image is picked up again in the book of Revelation when picturing the arrival of God and the establishment of his kingdom in the new creation. John writes in Revelation 21, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. 
And in Revelation 22, the church's longing for the return of Jesus is expressed as the longing of a bride for her bridegroom. It says, the spirit and the bride say, come. So marriage and sex are a prophetic act. They are a lived out metaphor. They are designed to tell the story of of salvation. Because the goal of all things is intimate union between God and his creation. It is the ultimate reconciliation without the eradication of difference. Marriage depicts the salvation story through its emphasis on three things. The first is its expression of difference. Man and woman, God and humanity, Christ and the church are different, not identical. The second is in the lifelong covenant commitment made between man and woman. Between a couple, it pictures the idea of God's faithful eternal love and commitment to us and our faithful and eternal commitment to him. And thirdly, it's intimacy. Now this means the sharing of absolutely everything. Not only sharing in our sexual union, but the sharing of our entire lives themselves. This is a picture of the complete intimacy into which we are all invited with God. So, marriage is this beautiful and profound metaphor, a mystery that speaks of Christ and the church and the very inner life of God, of the value of diversity and of the creative power of human unity. But in case we get too lofty a view of marriage, Paul brings us crashing down to earth with some practicalities in 1 Corinthians 7. He says this, Now for the matters you wrote to me, you say, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duties to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body but yields it to her husband. And in the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body but yields it to his wife. Notice there that that's mutual. It's, they belong to each other. It's not that the wife belongs to their husband, which is the terrible way that it's been applied in history. It's a mutual owning of one another. The wife does not have authority. Um, do not deprive each other, other, perhaps except by mutual consent, mutual consent, and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another that. Now to the unmarried and the widow, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry. For it's better to marry than burn with passion. But if you do marry, you haven't sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you this. So, to sum up what Paul is saying... I wish everyone was unmarried, holy and self-controlled like me, so that they were free to follow God, undistracted. But since so many of you are filled with uncontrolled lust, so that you don't sin, I guess it's okay if you get married. For Paul, in this passage, marriage is a concession. It's a practical solution to prevent sin. But here's the thing. I think Paul is well aware that marriage doesn't solve everything. Now, rather stereotypically, 
I got married at 22, and in my youthful naivety, I thought that marriage would mean that I would be having all the sex that I could ever want. But that's not the reality. As Paul mentions in our passage, sex is a spiritual battleground. Someone once said to me that before you get married, Satan does everything he can to make sure you have sex, and once you get married, he does everything he can to make sure you don't. And this has definitely been my experience. I've taken a lot, and, I, and to be honest, I've talked to a lot of married people, and I can tell you this. Even in the happiest of marriages, I haven't met anyone who is sexually fulfilled. Now, our society often talks about sexual fulfillment. And as a Christian, sometimes we can paint the picture that it's God's ideal for us too. That all we need to do is get married, and then we can be sexually fulfilled. But that's rubbish. I mean, since sex is not something you do on your own, like anything that involves someone else, there's going to be compromise. There's going to be a variety of experience. And there will always be fantasies, longings, desires that aren't and maybe shouldn't be expressed. God's invitation to all of us is not sexual fulfillment, but rather to pursue a journey of sexual contentment. Now, earlier in this series, Becky shared her journey of discipleship in the area of sexuality. And as we said, we truly want church to be a safe place where people can share their stories without shame. And there's no better way of doing this than by modelling it. So here's a little bit of mine. Whilst, unlike Becky, I was raised in a Christian family and came to faith at 12, when we met at university, we were both attracted, um, we were both same-sex attracted. Now, not exclusively, so the kids would call us bi or bisexual, but that means that for both of us, there are desires that can never be satisfied in monogamous, let alone heterosexual marriage. So the question is, does the Bible's teaching that marriage is a lifelong covenant commitment between one man and one woman do me and Becky to a life free from sexual fulfillment? Is our choice to commit to a straight marriage repression? Well, no, I don't think it is. Because for me, there is a really big difference between repression and self-discipline. Repression for me is rooted in shame and denial. It's pretending that something isn't there, that you don't really want what you desire. But self-discipline for me is to accept without shame the wants and desires that you have, but to freely and joyfully choose not to act on them. For example, when we fast food for a short period of time, we choose not to gratify the desire to eat. In doing so, with our actions, we say that Jesus is the true bread of life and that it is ultimately in him that all of our desires will be satisfied. Well, it is the same in the area of sexual expression. For those of us who are married, as we've seen, our sexual union points beyond itself to the consummation of the new creation when Jesus returns. And for all of us who live with unfulfilled sexual desires, which really is all of us, those longings are a part of the longings felt by all of creation and mirror the unfulfilled longings in the heart of God to be intimately united with his creation. 
So marriage isn't all about saying yes. There are a lot of no's in marriage. No's to friendships with people we find attractive. No's to the desires our partners can't or won't fulfill. And often no to our own dreams and ambitions. So marriage is a gift and a burden. Commitment comes at a high price. The burden of marriage described in 1 Corinthians and Ephesians is to love someone else as you love yourself. To no, long, to no longer belong to yourself alone. To place someone else's wants and desires before yours. Marriage is hard work. And not just in the area of sex. And if you're finding married life hard, there are loads of resources out there to help. I would really encourage you to pick one and be intentional about following through on it. But a healthy marriage never happens by accident. But if there is a secret to it, I would say it's communication. Talk to each other about how you feel, about what you want and need. And talk to other married people honestly about how you're doing, the joys and the challenges of marriage. Ask questions, listen non-defensively, and try new things. But as I wrap up, in summary, marriage is instituted by God to be a way to picture his relationship with us. Sex and gender matter here because they demonstrate the difference and inclusivity that sits at the heart of a triune God who wants to be in relationship with us. Marriage is a joy and a burden, not to be entered in lightly, but also not to be expected for Christians who actually might serve God better without it. Sexual fulfillment is not found in one partner or in many partners. Sexual contentment is found by choice, a choice to live always rejoicing and thankful in what God has given us without pretending that it's perfect. True fulfillment of all of our social, physical, emotional, and spiritual needs will only ever be found in relationship with God and will not be fully satisfied until we stand before a physical Jesus in a material new creation. Our ultimate fulfillment is found in Jesus alone. Until then, all areas of life, in every area of life, we are invited on a journey of pursuing Jesus and contentment. So as I come in, so I just want to leave you with this thought. Paul writes in his first letter to Timothy that living God's way with contentment is of great gain. So as we come to our next moment of worship, I just want to invite you to reflect on this question. In what areas of your life are you allowing compromise and the devil to rob you of joy and contentment? So just as the band um, set up, maybe you just want to, God is still here. He's still present with us. You just want to take a quiet moment to just sit um, with God and ask yourself, what is God saying to me this morning and um, how am I going to respond? Where is he inviting me to pursue contentment this morning? We hope you enjoyed the talk and found it helpful. We'd love to welcome you to one of our gatherings. We meet in multiple locations at multiple times on Sundays, as well as in midweek small groups across the city. 
More information on all of these can be found at our website, birminghamvineyard.com. Thanks for listening. Have a great day and God bless.